I want to tell you something, and that is operating a food company has been one of the most challenging endeavors of my life. From innovating products that we want to land at the intersection of taste and nutrition, to wrestling with supply chain issues and managing inventory, I have had more sleepless nights in the past three years than I have in the last 30, including the 12 when I was a firefighter. But no one tells you that food is hard. But I also want to say it's because of each of you that we continue to get in the trenches day after day after day. It's in our core values to keep at it, knowing that we are filling a giant void in the market with products that you can't find anywhere else. And this makes it easier for us to climb out of bed each day. I want to thank you for your patience. We are anxiously awaiting the return of our organic pancake and waffle mixes. And we're excited to announce that our Plant Strong milks will be available online later this week, followed soon thereafter by the return of our exciting new burger mixes. Our goal is to be your reliable and trustworthy partner for all things Plant Strong, allowing you to stock up on healthy meals that you can make and enjoy in minutes while still managing your busy lives. I appreciate each and every one of you and want you to know that the effort will be worth it once more brands start to care about the integrity of the nutrition that they're putting into their products. Thank you so much for your support and please stay tuned for exciting updates at planstrong.com. Happy Memorial Day weekend to all of you. I hope you're pulling out those grills and you're grilling up some healthy, tasty vegetables, potatoes, and all kinds of plant-strong food. My team and I, going into this Memorial Day weekend, we want to arm you with some additional content. So welcome to another bonus episode of the Plant Strong Podcast. I recently had the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Doug Lyle, absolute brilliant man, into our community for another, actually for our second Rips Rescue event. The topic, it's a hot topic, especially in this country right now where we have close to 43% of us that are obese and close to 75% of us that are either overweight or obese. But the topic was how to lose weight without losing your mind. If that sounds appealing to you guys, you'll definitely want to dive into this episode. We had over a thousand people who attended this live episode as Doug laid it out there with his really incredible depth of knowledge where he served as a clinical psychologist at the True North Health Center in Santa Rosa, California. We followed Doug's Q&A up with a Mindset Mastery Talk with the Plant Strong coaches, Amy Mackey and John Fitzgerald, to help guide you on how to put the content we just heard into action immediately. So you'll definitely want to listen to that. But this event was so powerful that I want to share it with everyone in hopes of providing some help and reassurance that you are not the problem and your genes are not to blame 
as much as many times many of us want to point the finger at someone besides ourselves. So, so many light bulb moments took place throughout this evening, and I can't wait for you to, to listen and hear them. Doug presented live on YouTube, but we think that the audio stands on its own. However, if you want to watch the YouTube presentation to see the slides that he references throughout, you can find that link in the show notes or on the episode link at plantstrongpodcast.com. Now, also, in honor of Memorial Day weekend and the start of summer, we're giving away our Plant Strong Grilling Guide that's loaded with all kinds of free recipes for brats, salads, kebabs, pizza, and a whole lot more. So once again, we'll have that link in order for you to download this guide in the episode link at plantstrongpodcast.com. Now, how in the world can you lose weight without losing your mind? Let's find out with this encore presentation of Rips Rescue with Dr. Doug Lyle, followed by a mindset mastery discussion with our coaches, John Fitzgerald and Amy Mackey. Hi, I'm Rip Esselstyn. I want to welcome you guys to our second Rips Rescue virtual event. I hope you're doing really, really well. You know, I know for a lot of us, this last year has been uh, very tough, and I hope that you're coming out of the pandemic as, uh, as best as possible uh, as we move from spring to summer. I know here in Austin, Texas, where I am right now, we've had a beautiful spring. We just have gotten a bunch of rain. Things are in bloom. Everything is, is green. We've got flowers, you know, popping up everywhere. Uh, it hasn't been too oppressively hot yet, so we're looking forward to, uh, to the summer months that are, that are approaching here. Many of you joined us for our first Rips Rescue event that we had about two months ago, and that was on heart disease, uh, the number one killer of Americans. For any of you that attended, you got to see my father, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. You got to see uh, my mother, Ann Kryle Esselstyn, and also a new kid on the block, uh, an up-and-comer, Dr. Brian Aspel, a cardiologist out of Asheville, North Carolina, who has really transitioned his practice to lifestyle medicine. The takeaway from that first Rips Rescue was that, you know, we really, really can do everything in our power to not only prevent, but also make ourselves bulletproof to heart disease just by making some simple changes as far as the foods that are at the end of our fork, spoon, and knife. This second event that we're having tonight, it's all about weight loss, right? And a lot of Americans think that this is a difficult thing, but that's just because they got the wrong information and they're not doing it correctly. It's something that is really like bearing this country right now. If you look at the latest numbers, I think that I saw from the CDC, close to 43% of America is now considered obese, 43%. And over the next decade, it's, it'll be upwards of 50%. And we know that obesity leads to all kinds of things like insulin, insulin resistance and diabetes and heart disease and major cancers. And, um, and so we want to do everything that we can to get a grip on losing weight finding our, and finding our ideal weight. And our guest speaker tonight is going to really help us with that information. As you guys may or may not know our mission here at Plant Strong is 
to provide you with as many of the tools and the resources and tips that will make this lifestyle as simple as possible for you, literally, hopefully drop dead simple to set you up for success where everybody wants it the most. And that's with controlling our health, controlling our, our, our weight. You know, if you have your health, you have absolutely everything. And when that starts to slide, all of a sudden life can get really, really kind of slippery. As many of you know, I have spent the last 12 years actually away from fighting fires. But now 12 years ago, for 12 years, I was a firefighter and I was answering calls for help every single shift, usually anywhere between five to 15 emergency calls. But now over the last 12 years, I've really dedicated my life to helping people rescue themselves by sharing evidence-based information and dismantling the insane amount of myths and misinformation that are out there right now. Whether it is the paleo diet, the keto diet, and the new kid on the block, which of course is the carnivore diet. People are absolutely desperate right now to do anything to lose weight. People are, as we know, they're, um, they're getting bariatric surgery uh, and all a multitude of different things to lose weight. So we are going to show you the absolute simplest and also most sustainable way to lose weight tonight. As a big, big thank you for joining us tonight, we're going to be giving away a free Plant Strong Summer uh, Grilling Guide to everyone in attendance. It's a collection of eight mouth-watering, plant-strong recipes, including my favorite, which is the epic all-American brats recipe. You're not gonna believe how simple this is using brown rice paper wrap uh, kind of as your, uh, as what holds everything together. And the versatility of this thing is out of sight you can put it on a grill, you can put it in a skillet, you can throw it in, in, in the oven. It is phenomenal. So stay tuned because in just a little bit later, we're gonna share that link for absolutely all of you. Now, for anybody that can't stay for the whole event, don't fret for one second. I want you to know that this will be recorded and um, there will be a complimentary replay for absolutely everyone uh, in attendance because we have your emails. I want to go back for a second uh, and, and, and talk about weight because as a firefighter, for 12 years as a firefighter, yes, we fought fires, but only about 10% of our call volume was fighting fires. Believe it or not, 90% of our call volumes, we were responding as emergency first responders, as EMTs, paramedics, to the absolute dearth of chronic Western disease that is afoot right now in this country. So we saw up close and personal, the devastation that's caused by the fork, the spoon and the knife. We, we made all these calls on people that were having heart attacks, difficulty breathing, people that had just had a, uh, a stroke. We made calls on people that had a diabetic emergency. Uh, their blood glucose had gone too low. And so we had to feed them some sort of an oral glucose or orange juice or something else to get their blood sugars up. We saw when we were asking for their, their health history, the, the, just the insane cocktail 
of medications that most of these, these people were on. And we also made a ton of calls, more than I care to remember. They're called lifting assistance calls where EMS, emergency medical services, would call for firefighter support to help lift somebody that typically was anywhere between 400 pounds to 750 pounds and get them out of their house in a safe manner onto the stretcher and into the ambulance. And when I first started doing this back in 1997 as a firefighter, we were using these stretchers that were only good up to 350 pounds. When we had somebody that was over 500 pounds, we would literally just take the biggest, thickest wool blanket we could find. We'd slide it underneath them. And then we'd get about eight of us. We'd grab onto it and we would take the stretcher out of the ambulance and we'd slide them right into the ambulance. Today, because there's so much of this obesity, they've completely changed the stretchers. They now have hydraulic stretchers that go up to 750 pounds. You put the, the person on the stretcher when it's almost at ground level. And then with just your foot, you can raise it up. You don't have to lift it, three or four of you. Uh, they now have something called a mega mover. It is made of this really thick nylon and there's eight different straps on it that are very, very um, rigorous and eight people can get around it and then carry this person out of their home and then into the, uh, onto the stretcher and then into the ambulance. Um, but just to give you an idea, this, this was some of the things that I was seeing just as I was leaving the, uh, the fire department in, uh, in 2009. So that being said, I want to ask all of you a question. And that question is, it's kind of personal. Did any of you gain weight over the last year, year and a half during the pandemic? And I would bet that the answer is many of you have. Believe it or not, most Americans have gained weight over the last year, year and a half during the pandemic. And actually, now that I think about it, it's not that surprising, right? Um, we, we have been forced into conditions that most of us haven't been under uh, our whole entire lives. Now, I have some stats here that I want to share with you. What we discovered, and this is a survey that was done by the American Psychological Association, it found that 42% of U.S. adults said that they've gained too much weight over the last year. And the average amount of weight that was gained over the last year was 29 pounds. That's, that's a lot of weight. Now, more women than men have reported gaining weight, 45% women, 39% of the men, but you can flip it when it comes to how much the average weight gain was. So for men, they reported the average weight gain at 37 pounds. And for women, the average weight gain was 22 pounds. So you might be asking, well, what was the culprit? And Doug may be able to, may be able to help us with this as well. But, you know, off the top of the tongue, I'm looking at a lot less movement, which Doug may say may have nothing to do with it. You also have more snacking that's going on. I can tell you as a firefighter, when you're in that firehouse and you don't know when that alarm is going off, going to go off 
and you've got a little bit of nerves going on, you are floating in and out of that kitchen all shift uh, and looking for something to snack on. So that could be something. The other thing is you've got more convenient foods right now. And we also are facing a new environment now where we've got Uber Eats and we've got Instacart where literally, uh, and this is part of the motivational triad, Doug, you know, uh, conservation of energy. I'm just picking up my phone and within 10 minutes, I've got a pizza at my door. I've got groceries. I've got whatever, whatever my heart wants. And so that's probably not doing us any favors. We've also got a lot less structure in our lives going on right now. And I'm sure that that's contributing. And then also more stress, which, which may lead to some stress eating and binge eating as well. So these are all things that uh, I think are going on right now. You know, there's this thing called the quarantine 15, which means, uh, you know, alludes to coming out of COVID. A lot of people are saying they've gained 15 pounds, but you saw the stats. The average is 29 pounds. That is crazy. So what I discovered when I was in the fire department is that the average firefighter gained between five to 10 pounds a year. And so I work with some guys that after 10 years on the fire department, they had gained between 80 and 100 pounds. And what I also discovered is that yeah, there was a report that came out in 2014 that showed that 83% of paid and volunteered firefighters across the country, 83% are either overweight or obese. That's firefighters, right? And their job is to be healthy. So that's some, some serious stuff. So with this, introduction, I want to introduce a guy who I think can help us unpack everything that's going on right now when it comes to weight gain, weight loss, you know, COVID-19, why are people gaining 29, 42, 37 pounds in a year? And this is my good friend, Dr. Doug Lyle. Doug is an evolutionary psychologist. He's been working with True North Health Center for over 30 years with his good buddy, Dr. Alan Goldhammer. True North is really at the cutting edge of, of helping people with serious, serious illnesses. And um, they're using this all-encompassing lifestyle medicine approach to help people. So what I want Doug to do today, because of his vast experience working with literally thousands of, of patients over the last 30 years, is to explain to us how best we can all achieve sustainable weight loss. And I think what you're going to find is that he's going to unveil the surprising yet very inspiring truth about how each and every one of us can reach our, our weight loss goals and our health goals in a very, very simple way. Um, some fun facts about Doug before I turn it over to him. He uh, co-wrote The Pleasure Trap with Dr. Alan Goldhammer. He is really well known for his part in the groundbreaking documentary Forks Over Knives that actually, Doug, came out 10 years ago this month. It's been 10 years since the Forks Over Knives came out. But he had, that, he had a role in Forks Over Knives that nobody will forget where he narrates the drumbeat that plays in the shark's brain of food sex, food sex, food sex. Unless, of course, as he says, it's a male shark and then it's sex food, sex food, sex food, sex food. <laughs> Doug, Doug has also got, he's got a very exciting book on the horizon. I don't know if you want to share anything about that. 
if you're ready or not, Doug, but I'm just throwing that out there to everybody. Um, Doug has taught both psychology and statistics at Stanford University over the years. He plays an absolute mean game of basketball, and he has just like uh, taken me to town on many occasions. And I want you all to know, and Doug, how much we've missed you dearly over the last year and a half, not, not being able to see you at any of our medical immersion retreats. And I, I look forward to, uh, to hopefully seeing you very, very soon. So before I launch into Doug, everybody, get your questions ready. So while Doug is, is giving his presentation, take, take notes, write in your, your, your questions for us. And then shortly after Doug's Q&A session, I'm gonna be introducing you guys to our Plant Strong health coaches, John Fitzgerald and Amy Mackey, who do an absolute stupendous job heading up our Rescue 10X uh, Mindset Mastery Program. And they're gonna share that with you tonight as well. So with that, I think we're ready. I'm gonna turn it over to you, Dr. Doug Lyle, losing weight without losing my mind. How do I do it? Very good. Thank you, Rip. It's a, uh, it's a pleasure to see you. And it's a pleasure to be back talking with Engine 2. All right, everybody. Uh, this is called Losing Weight Without Losing Your Mind. And we're just going to go through here and we're going to see what these slides are showing us to see if we can figure this thing out. The, uh, now, everybody knows what this is, of course. And uh, for those of you that are a little slow on the uptake, it's of course a, a chicken crossing the road. You can tell by the distinctive markings that it's a chicken. And this is one of the great philosophical questions of all time. So why does the chicken cross the road? And the answer is of course, to get to the other side. Now, but the, then the real question is, why does the chicken wanna to get to the other side? And the answer is of course, uh, there might be more worms over there. That would be one reason. Or it's possible that there might be hens over there. <laughs> right? Or it could be that it could be being chased by something that looks very similar to the shark in Forks Over Knives, but is instead has legs. <laughs> That's that. So this is uh, what we're going to see is we're going to see reasons behind why any creature does anything. There's reasons why we do things. And the reasons are gonna turn out to be uh, either pleasure seeking. In other words, uh, there's a, uh, we do something under the anticipation or the knowledge that if we continue, if you take a, a bite of a chocolate bar, it hits the pleasure centers and then you know that the next bar will, uh, next bite will do the same. Or you already know from uh, previous knowledge uh, that that thing that's, that says Snickers on it actually will cause that reaction in you. Or you have, innate genetic knowledge already. So for example, you're a male hamster and you see a female hamster, nobody has to teach you. Uh, you are inherently drawn to something that is going to create pleasure, which is going to be, by the way, uh, most importantly, it's going to be a flood of dopamine in what's known as the reward pathway or the dopamine pathway. So pleasure is going to be the experience that we feel when we are getting evidence from the nervous system that tells us that it appears that we've increased our likelihood of survival or we've increased our likelihood of reproduction or both. So when you eat a cherry and it tastes good, 
that's a pleasure response telling you that that food stuff is actually valuable for you. Whereas if you open up a jar of something in your refrigerator uh, that was supposed to be good or was good a month ago and you sniff it and it smells bad, uh, your, your uh, reaction is to actually pull yourself away from it. Uh, and that's because it's actually harmful for you. So your nervous system automatically is able to register these things. And pleasure is a key way that we know when things are good. Uh, and we, we know them through the different organs. Something can feel good on your skin uh, or can feel bad on your skin. So if you rub it through a rose bush, uh, it doesn't feel good, but something could feel good. It can look good. It can smell good. It can taste good. Uh, it can sound good. So we see that we've got five senses, uh, different ways to explore, experience pleasure through these five different sensory pathways. Uh, we can also feel pain. Um, uh, when we see something, it can be so, so disturbing that we don't even want to look at it. Uh, we, if we hear things that, that sound bad, they're cacophonous or they're too loud. Um, or for example, the low growl of a Tyrannosaurus Rex, you know, in a movie, <laughs> you're going to have un unpleasant feelings in this case, anxiety, uh, when you hear certain things. Um, so pleasure seeking and pain avoidance are going to be essentially, uh, your nervous system is constructed on, on what you might consider a lot, big, long, uh, wide line segment. And in the middle is neutral, where whatever the thing is, is neither pleasurable nor painful. It actually has no particular feeling at all. Over here on one side, it's super pleasurable. That's the most exquisite moment of pleasure that you might you know, experience. And on the downside, it's the worst thing, the worst pain you've ever experienced. What underlies those feelings of pleasure and pain are actually values. So these are evaluative systems built into the organism. If it's pleasurable, it's good. If it's, if it's painful, it's bad. And when we mean good or bad, it translates into the biological uh, derivative of that, which is increased likelihood of survival reproduction or decreased likelihood of survival and reproduction. So that's how nervous systems are built and that's how humans are built. So we seek pleasure, i.e. biological success. We, we try to avoid pain, i.e. biological trouble or failure. Uh, but we don't just do those things. We also tend to conserve energy. So uh, this is why, for example, the uh, predators the world over will go after the weak, the sick, the slow, the isolated and the injured. They do this naturally and automatically because they're attempting to get the pleasure of eating, i.e. Uh, success, biological success, needed calories. They're trying to avoid the pain of starvation. And so in order to do that, they must use energy conservation programs and there's decision rules that help them to make the right decision to increase their likelihood of biological success. So uh, if there's a tuna uh, trying to run away from a great white shark and the shark uh, has one tuna 20 feet away and another one 40 feet away, it's always gonna go for the one 20 feet away because that's gonna increase its likelihood of success. So that's why we do things and that's why all creatures do things. They do things in order to seek pleasure, avoid pain and conserve energy. With those three things, we call that the motivational triad, will help us understand a great deal about all human and animal behavior. Now, um, I kind of made up some numbers here, <laughs> not, not entirely. Um, 
There's, I think there's like 20 million species on the planet or something like that, but most of them are microbes. So this is a little bit bogus, but there's a huge amount of species on, on the earth that, that store fat uh, by the many, 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 many thousands. And, um, and so what we have is a, is a mystery. And that is why do we have, you know, 100,000 fat storing species on earth and we have three of them that are having weight problems. Okay. That should catch your attention. Hmm. Or we could say 2 million, but you know, microbes wouldn't store fat. I don't think so. Talk to a microbiologist about that. Well, why is it that we have 300,000 to three? And most people uh, have heard from the press about what the answer is. That is that you eat too much and you don't exercise enough. So the notion is, is that you got to eat less and exercise more. And this would, in fact, uh, this is how you diet. Okay. So I call this the super bird foul health club, less worms, more running around. That's how these animals are supposed to not get fat. Now it's interesting that people that are thin, which comprise a modest percentage of the population, uh, maybe 10 or 15% of the population, more in young people, but not by the age of 40. And um, so there's a certain number of, of uh, you know, normal to finish uh, looking people walking around. And those people actually don't have the faintest clue about why they are thin and why other people aren't. So they have theories about this. And the theories are that Sally, you know, eats too much and doesn't exercise enough. I've heard this, you know, my whole life, like, oh, well, there's a reason why Sarah is overweight. Every time I turn around, she's eating a cracker. Okay. So it turns out that uh, that is not uh, the reason why uh, the, the thin people tend to believe that they're thin because they exercise restraint. And the truth is once in a blue moon, they do. Uh, they probably don't exercise as much restraint in their eating behavior as people that are heavy. Uh, it's because they're not self-conscious about it and they don't worry about it. So uh, what, they, what people think is that if you are thin or reasonable weight, that you've got your act together and that you've got your, your emotionally solid. But if you have a weight problem, then you have some deep psychological issues that are actually driving what it is. You've got emotional things that you haven't overcome. You've got some kind of terrible history that hasn't been explored, or you just, you know, you're just some way a psychological mess. This is what people believe. Now, so it's this big mystery. Why are there weight problems? Well, people don't control their portions. Uh, they, they eat, you know, they, they, they don't exercise enough judgment there. Um, or they don't exercise as much as they should. Or they're stressed out and somehow stress causes them to eat more. Or they've got emotional issues that are driving them to eat more or they've got thick genes, or fast food, or too much snacking, or childhood issues. It's gonna turn out that the, the picture is quite a bit different than people think. So there's reasons why a lot of these have been uh, sort of kicked around and inferences have been made. There's many different reasons why uh, there's such confusion around this. However, I wanna point something out. Remember, we have three species that are having weight problems. They are humans, dogs, and cats. That should get your attention right away, okay? 
there's something, maybe it's something about the electric light bulb that humans, dogs, and cats live where there's electric light bulbs. And because the electric light bulbs cause some ultraviolet disturbance of the hypothalamus of their brains, that it causes them to somehow eat more. <laughs> no, there's another reason. So we're gonna to get to what the real reasons are. And incidentally, they're gonna have almost nothing to do with almost anything that's on this page. Now, here's, uh, I actually have two cats. I used to have cat, a cat named Frisky, but not anymore. There's Frisky. I do have two cats now. And here's Spot. And when we're gonna look at them, uh, their names are now Henry and Annalise, but the story remains the same actually. And this is what it looks like in the morning when I'm gonna, when I'm ready to eat, uh, feed them. That one of them, Annalise, is a great deal thicker than the other one, uh, which is Henry. And so they're both eating exactly the same food out of the same food bowl. So why is it that one of them is thick and the other one is thin? Incidentally, that's me, of course, with the Artist My Life t-shirt. You can tell that, that I should have been an artist, obviously, uh, but my father refused to support my talent. And so I got stuck doing psychology. So I'm doing the best I can here with all my issues. <laughs> all right. So what we're going to do now is we're going to try to understand uh, what is happening with uh, the individual differences between those two creatures and why it is that one of them has a weight problem, quote unquote, and one of them doesn't. And everybody knows who this is, of course, and that's Isaac Newton. So Isaac Newton was a young man in his early 20s, and he was sitting under a tree, apparently at Cambridge, and an apple fell down and I probably hit him in the head. I don't know. <laughs> and he was looking up at the moon in the midday sky, and he thought, why isn't the moon falling? You know, if the apple is falling, why isn't the moon falling? Doesn't make sense. And so, I mean, not that this is any big deal, but he then, you know, took out a pad of paper and scratched out the laws of motion and inverse square law of gravity. I don't know why everybody makes such a big deal out of it. <laughs> but anyway, he figures out the nature of gravity. All right. And that being this, you know, critical law of that that, that guides guides the action of matter all over, all over our planet. The um, here we have the law of satiety, and the the law of satiety is also universal to the animal kingdom, and that is animals that eating to full satisfaction or satiety in their natural habitat will over time eat neither too much nor too little for optimum health. This is inscribed in, you know, some stone tablets. No, it's not. I just made it up. <laughs> I made up the law of satiety, but this is well recognized in biology. Uh, so there's uh, been very many investigations of this. This is truth. Okay? This is uh, the same way that you have a magnificent uh, satiation mechanism for your breathing. So you don't have to try to figure out how much to breathe you just breathe the right amount. As long as you've got adequate lung function and, and uh, you don't have some terrible damage, you just naturally breathe the right amount. You don't have to keep track of it. 
Uh, incidentally, you also naturally sleep the right amount. If a alarm clock wakes you up and you're tired, then you're a little bit short. But you're you are designed by nature to have guidance systems to actually cause you to sleep to satiety, to eat to satiety, to drink water to satiety. Uh, this is how it is that you're built. Uh, you are, uh, uh, and to breathe this satiety. These are critical mechanisms for animals and you're not the only one that has it. They're all over the animal kingdom. They're part and parcel of the machinery of the brain. Now, in the last 45 years, since I've been reasonably the same size as I am now, I've eaten probably 45,000 pounds of food, more or less, and maybe a little more than that. If I were just 1% food short, if I just sort of uh, skipped over 1%, what would happen? Well, that means I would have been 450 pounds of food short. Okay. And that food is a reasonable facsimile for the body tissue that I have in terms of calorie density. So that means that we'd have to, I would have had to cannibalize, you know, a bunch of my own tissue to make up for the 450 pounds I'd be short right now, which means I'd be dead and wouldn't be here. So clearly I have not under eaten by 1% in the last 45 years. What if I 1% was 1% over? I would have eaten 450 pounds too much. And let's suppose the average calorie density was, oh, oh I don't know, maybe really light. Maybe it was 400, maybe it was 500 calories a pound. So maybe I would have eaten um, essentially at 4,000 calories a pound uh, for fat. It would take me uh, take me eight pounds of food uh, in order to get that done. And if I was 450 uh, pounds over, that would make me about whatever it is. That's about 55 pounds heavy. So if I had overeaten by 1%, I'd be 55 pounds overweight. Take a little note of that. That's actually very interesting. The average American woman uh, will gain about 40 pounds from her 16th birthday to her 36th birthday. So she'll be about 120 something pounds at 16 and she will be about 160 something pounds 20 years later. She will gain um, about two pounds a year. It's very interesting. Very, very subtle issues. Notice I just talked about 1% over in 45 years, I would have gained 55 pounds, pretty close, very similar. How is it possible to engineer such amazing precision that if we're 1% short, we're dead, and 1% long, we're way heavy? So therefore, in the animal kingdom, the animals are actually eating food in their natural habitat to a level where they are almost perfect. They're not anywhere close to a tenth of a percent high or low. They are extremely accurate. How? Well, this is done, obviously everyone knows this is a duck-billed ducus. This is, I have no idea what species this is, but I know that it's got a hypothalamus. <laughs> so in that hypothalamus, there's little bundles of neurons that, that uh, figure out different problems, like how much to drink, whether you should be thirsty, uh, how much to sleep, whether or not you've, you've had enough sleep, and how much to eat, okay? So uh, there's a... Uh, uh, so what the hypothalamus is going to do is it needs to know kind of where it is that you stand with respect to your food intake, and it needs to be judging what is happening over time. And so in the short run, it, it'll both 
it'll both analyze data in the long run about what seems to be happening to your body if there's some kind of trend, if you're either losing weight or gaining weight, uh, or if it's reasonably stable. It will also analyze data in real time while you're eating and while you're digesting food. So it's going to do this primarily through two different methods. Now, I want you to think about if you had a little cousin named Leroy and at his birthday last year, you didn't bring a present and you forgot, but you happen to have a bunch of change in your pocket and he's only four. So you dug into your pocket and you took out this bunch of change and you handed it to the kid. Now, fortunately, unfortunately for you, the kid is smart. So what the kid does is the first thing the kid does with this handful of change is do what? Looks at it. And what's the first thing the kid does? Well, the very first thing the kid does is to feel how much you gave him. Okay? How much change is it? Is it a whole bunch of change or is it a little bit of tiny change? And it knows the difference. He's got sensors that can feel you know, what that feels like. That is the equivalent of stretch reception. When you put stem, uh, food in your stomach, that stomach is gonna get pushed out and the neurons are gonna get stretched and it's gonna be paying attention to how far that's gonna get stretched. That's the equivalent of Le Leroy feeling how much uh, money you gave him. But that's not all that's gonna count because Leroy is intelligent and he's gonna look down in there and see what resources he's got. And if he sees a bunch of quarters and dimes, he's gonna be pretty happy about it. It's gonna be like, wow, that's a lot of money. If he looks down in there and sees pennies and nickels and only a couple of dimes and a quarter, he's not gonna feel like you gave him very much. This is a thing you've heard for a long time. When I eat Chinese food, I don't feel like I ate anything. That's an American who's used to eating steak and chocolate shakes and French fries, enormously calorie dense food. And then when they eat a vegetable, they feel like they must not have had anything to eat, okay? That's because their, their system is detecting that there's not, not as, it's not as nutrient rich. And in nutrient rich, I'm not using it in a term of uh, Joel Furman and micronutrients that are healthy. I'm using it in the terminology of, of macronutrients, i.e. fat, uh, protein, and carbohydrate. So uh, the, the system is designed by nature to detect essentially the calorie density of the diet. So it, it uses nutrient receptors, receptors for detecting, for example, the presence of fat. Uh, if there's no fat in the food and there's a bunch of fiber and water in it, so you just ate a bunch of lettuce, then this thing knows, you know what? I'm not really impressed by the fact that I just ate two pounds of lettuce, which would be a phenomenal amount of lettuce. It would, two pounds of food will stretch out the stomach, you know, tremendously. So no, it's not that impressed by that two pounds because that food is only hundred calories a pound and therefore you've only eaten 200 calories. So if you did that five times a day, uh, and you chomped down 10 pounds of romaine lettuce, you would have chomped down a thousand calories, which is not enough for you to ultimately survive indefinitely. Okay, so you would starve to death. So even though you're cramming the stomach full, the stretch receptors are screaming for relief, you are still hungry. Okay, that's because this thing wasn't designed to eat food that 
lean uh, to make a living out of it. It's designed to eat some of it, but it's designed to eat foods in combination where there's a reasonable nutrient density or score to the food. Uh, if you were to eat just sticks of butter, you can imagine like, whoa, what if you did that, okay? Well, if you just ate a stick of butter, the butter is pure fat, it's 4,000 calories a pound. So we go from lettuce that's 100 calories a pound all the way to butter that's 4,000 calories a pound. That's a 40 to one difference in the calorie density of that food. So you can imagine if there are fat receptors in the stomach and you take a big bite of butter, they should be screaming, okay? They should be saying, holy smokes, in one bite, okay, you just gave us a ton of calories. And it would, it would actually have that response. That's why uh, eating half an apple will not cause the same amount of satiety as eating the same amount of poundage or so two or three ounces of nuts. Because nuts are very, very high in fat and therefore very high in calorie density. All right, so this is how the, the system can do this, the nervous system. It actually estimates the calories as you're eating them. It does this by essentially estimating how much volume you are giving it, essentially by the poundage. Uh, so it'll say, okay, well, that's a pretty good meal. I just ate about a pound and a half of food. Okay, so, but it depends on what it was. If it was a bunch of steamed vegetables, steamed vegetables are only 200 calories a pound. So you would have eaten 300 calories. That's not very much. If you're going to eat three meals a day like that, you'll eat a lot of food. There'll be a lot of volume, but you will have only eaten 900 calories. Okay, so that's not going to fly. So there has to be another system so that animals didn't make the mistake of eating perfectly reasonably tasty food like a bunch of vegetables, but actually then only eating three or four pounds of them and therefore under eating by a massive amount and dying. So the system is smarter than that and it uses nutrient receptors and those nutrient receptors analyze the chemical uh, the chemicals that are in the food. By chemicals, I don't mean the awful chemicals that are used by Monsanto. No, I mean chemicals like essential fatty acids, uh, protein, and carbohydrate, okay? I.e. the macronutrients. So it does a macronutrient analysis to find out how much fat versus how much protein versus how much fiber versus how much water versus how much carbohydrate. Those are the five major components of food known as the macronutrients. The, the, the uh, fiber and water have no calories at all. Those are zero. Uh, carbohydrate and protein have a similar uh, amount of, of calorie density. Those are about 1,800 calories a pound. And then uh, fat is 4,000 calories a pound. So, so we can see that foodstuffs are generally made of a combination of these things. So a potato, for example, has protein in it. It's got a tiny bit of fat, hardly at all. Uh, it definitely is mostly made out of carbohydrate in terms of its calories, but it's actually mostly made out of water. How do you know? Because a potato is 375 calories a pound and carbohydrate is, pure carbohydrate is 1800. So therefore a potato must be about 75% water, which it is. Okay. It's basically water with a little bit of carbohydrate, little tiny, you know, a little bit of protein and infinitesimal dollop of fat. That's what, it, that's what it is. That's why it is very low calorie density. So 
but it's obviously at 375, it's far more calorie density than the broccoli, which is only 200 calories a pound. So stretch reception and nutrient reception is the equivalent of your little four-year-old Leroy looking inside and saying, that's a pretty good amount that you gave me, Uncle Doug. And I'm seeing a good amount of dimes and quarters, but I'm seeing some nickels and pennies in there. In other words, there's some fiber, there's some water, but there's some fat and there's some protein and carbohydrate. Okay, I see about how much this is, okay? That's what the system does. It estimates what you eat. Now we're gonna look at a couple of people. These couple of people, we see one of them is struggling with their weight and the other one isn't. And if we looked inside their digestive system, we looked inside their small intestine and we sort of were observing what was happening inside that entire process of digestion of food, we would find something interesting in all probability. This won't be the only variable that we would find, but it's one that has been uh, found in animals. And that is that, I don't know if they've done this with people or not, but when you find something like this in animals, you find it in people. So probably somebody probably has. The, um, what's gonna happen is, is that the, we see on the left that both, we see that both of them have both stretch receptors and fat receptors inside their digestive system. That makes sense. You should have both of those uh, uh, in there. But we see both of them have a similar amount of stretch receptors, but one of them has an awful lot of fat receptors and the other one has a lot less. Now that's interesting. Okay. What might happen then? Well, if we were to eat a very um, uh, low-fat diet, it probably wouldn't make that much difference. But if we ate a very high-fat diet, let's suppose we ate a diet where we needed to count five parts of fat, oh, I don't know, 50 calories a piece. So we had to have a mechanism that could count 250 calories of fat. Well, look, our guy on the right could count that. He's got one, two, three, four, five receptors there, so he could get it. And the guy on the left could absolutely get it without any problem. So neither one of them would have any problem cataloging and counting that very high calorie density food. But what if we had uh, some foodstuffs that had higher concentration of fat than that? What if it had 10 components of fat in it? Then our person on the right would be in trouble because they could only count five of them. And then they're not going to be able to be sensitive to the fact that that food, which has taken up some space, is not just taking up space and being cataloged by stretch receptors, but it's also got tremendous calorie density that is not being cataloged. And therefore, if it's not being cataloged, it doesn't create a feeling of satiety that would be appropriate for the amount of calories that you're eating. So if we were to feed them both, say a nice plate full of food that averaged 500 calories a pound, so there's some potatoes on there and some red rice and a salad. I'm just making this up. And if both of them were to eat 500 calories, and let's suppose 500 calories is totally appropriate for optimum function for both of them for the next few hours. They both have very similar biologies. They're about the same height. Uh, they're, they're, they're gonna do about the same amount of physical work in the next few hours. In other words, this is what they should be eating. If they both eat that plate of food, both of them will figure out that they eat 500 calories and it will shut down the hunger drive at the right time and they'll be done. And they'll be say thanks for the 500 and on we go. But what if we instead feed them very rich food? 
And the guy on the left is high in fat. And so he, we put the junk food in there and he can count up all that fat. And he, when he gets through 500 calories, he's like, wow, I'm done. Thanks for the 500. But the guy on the right couldn't count that much fat. And so as a result, by the time he eats 500 calories, his nervous system only thinks he's eaten 400. And so we can know what's going to happen next. And that's that he's hungry for 500 calories and he's going to buy God eat another 100 calories till he gets done. And when he does, he will have systematically overeaten by 100 calories and not known it. He felt like he hit it right. Okay. Now, so this is how we break the law of satiety. Law of satiety is that animals in their natural habitat will either eat, not eat too much or too little for optimum function. They'll get it just right. Well, we know that he's not eating the right amount of food because he's carrying around 30 extra pounds. So we know he's systematically overeating relative to his actions. So some people have said, well, he's not exercising enough. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Because the truth is, if he exercised less, if an animal exercises less, it'll eat less. It'll just adjust its, its uh, hunger drive, of course. So that's not what's happening. What's happening is, is that he's systematically overeating. Well, how is he systematically overeating when he's got nutrient and stress receptors that are designed by nature to try to get him to get it just right? And the answer is, He's actually fooling the receptors. Receptors can be fooled in a number of ways, but one of the ways that you can do this, uh, they weren't designed to be eating pure fat. So when you put more fat in that stomach than, than it's designed to catalog, you're gonna, it's gonna slip right past it. Experiments at Penn State University have shown that if you take uh, two piles of pasta for two different sets of people to eat, and one of them eats the piles of pasta with the, I don't know, tomato sauce and vegetables and noodles. And the other one eats tomato sauce, vegetables and noodles, but you sneak in 300 calories of oil, which requires almost no space. It, 300 calories of oil is so small. Um, 300 calories of oil would be uh, 4,000 calories a pound. 10% of a pound would be 400 calories. And that would be 1.6 ounces. So if we were to get down to um, 300 calories, it'd be three quarters of that, call it an ounce. So if you throw an ounce of, of one little ounce of oil and you distribute it in a big plate of pasta uh, and, and sauce and vegetables, which could be easily a pound. So we, we take out one ounce of pasta and we put in one ounce of oil. Now it's a, kind of a little bit of an oily plate of pasta. Those individuals will eat that, they'll eat the same amount of pasta, they'll eat the same amount of food, same pound of food, except they will have eaten 300 more calories. Wow. The pasta and the vegetables and the, and the sauce will only be about five to 600 calories per pound. But we can add 300 calories. We can go, we can like add 50% more calories into that, into the same space. And the person will eat it and they will never know that that happened. Whoa, you talk about fooling the device. There's other ways to fool it. So uh, processing foods, processing carbohydrates, for example, or other foods, if you soften them 
and make them easier to digest, then they don't stay as long in the digestive tract. They move through more quickly. The stretch receptors are designed not just to find out how far you stretch to see if you got enough, but also how long it stays stretched. Okay. So as a result, if they're not stretched out for as long behind that four or 500 calories, that it will pass through very quickly, then the system feels like it didn't get it quite enough food. And therefore we have a hunger drive that's going to be driving past a normal stopping place. So um, exercise deficiency uh, to, to a modest extent, that's, that's true. Not, it's not a large issue. It's a minor issue. Uh, Rip used to say, diet is the king, exercise is the queen. I would say diet is the king, the exercise is the bishop. <laughs> because the chessboard, the, uh, it's there. It's not, it's not ineffectual. It's just not, uh, it's not as, it's dwarfed by the diet. All right, so how do we get dietary excess in the system? Fiber deficiency, uh, we can take what used to be an important component of the food, fiber, which is zero calories. And as a result, we, we pull those out of there. Um, uh, and, and, and as a result, the, the food becomes more concentrated. So think about this with an apple. We can walk our way through this. An apple is about 300 calories a pound. But suppose we, um, we actually, we could, we could change that apple by uh, making it into applesauce. If we made it into applesauce, all the materials would still be in there. But interestingly enough, we would have damaged the fiber uh, by grinding it. And as a result, the food would actually be digested about 12% more efficiently. So effectively, it would have increased the, uh, the effective calorie density of that food uh, up to about 335 or 340 calories a pound. So we don't, you know, that's not in any box on anything. So the, uh, but that, that is the truth. So in other words, the effective calorie density has been increased by something like that processing. So we can damage the fiber and the processing of carbohydrates. Uh, we can also add oils, as I've just said. Um, uh, so the, the foods have become super concentrated uh, in, in a world that we now have something called groceries. We have a grocery store. Okay. Well, a grocery store, what groceries are, are these dry goods uh, that nowadays are tremendously processed, which means that they are effectively, either literally or effectively, in higher calorie density. So the removal of the fiber will increase the calorie density. The removal of water will increase the calorie density. So, for example, bread is not the same product as pasta. So pasta is, they're, they're biochemically very similar. And if we talk to Dr. Esselstyn, we'll find out that there's going to be no significant difference there with respect to heart disease, all true. Um, if we talk to Colin Campbell, we'll find out there's no difference between those two with respect to cancer. Uh, they could both be perfectly healthy, except that one of them is dried. So one of them is 1,600 calories a pound bread. The other one is 900 calorie pound pasta. So the, the, the bread is about twice the calorie density. And so therefore it's much more likely to be systematically overeaten because 1600 calories a pound is vastly high relative to the average calorie density that this species was designed to eat. All right, so artificial concentrations of the diet. So what's more filling? Nice little pint of Haagen-Dazs <laughs> or a half gallon of raw salad, three years of corn, two baked potatoes and a pound of cherries. 
same amount of calories. What do you think is more likely to be overeaten today? Obviously, the second will never be overeaten. Uh, you're not going to systematically overeat any of that food because it's within the natural system. But a pint of ice cream is not natural, and therefore, people will systematically overeat that constantly. All right. So here's a, a really careful chart. It took me years of research to do this. So uh, here we see we go from zero calories a pound with fiber and water over there to uh, pure fat at oil or butter at up to 4,000 calories a pound and all kinds of stuff in between. There's a, one error I spotted. I haven't looked at these slides. Uh, meat is typically not 1,200 calories a pound. It can be uh, depending on how it's prepared, but usually it's about 800. Uh, it depends on the fat content of the meat. It, probably a modern hamburger might be 1200, but wild game and fish and things like that might be closer to 800. The um, notice where an engine two diet is going to be. Down here, we're gonna have some salad in that diet from time to time, that's 100 calories a pound. We're gonna have vegetables in that diet, the ones that you cook, broccoli, carrots. Oh, don't eat carrots. Those are carbohydrates and starches, and therefore they're going to make you fat. Really, really. 200 calories a pound is going to make you fat. You're not going to be able to survive on 200 calories a pound. It's so lean. So no, it's not going to make you fat. Uh, broccoli, spinach, asparagus, all that jazz, cauliflower. Your vegetables are about 200 calories a pound. Uh, fruit is about 300 calories a pound. Um, the, the starches, uh, rice, beans, potatoes, sort of the backbone of civilization are the car carbohydrates. Um, carbohydrates today on planet Earth are, are by far the most uh, calorically, uh, calorically utilized food stuff that there is. And, um, and so they're, they're about uh, in their natural form filled with water, i.e. baked potatoes full of water. The uh, rice is full of water, beans are full of water, oatmeal is full of water, pasta is full of water, which not, isn't natural, it's moderately processed. These are all full of water. They are wet carbohydrates, natural carbohydrates. These average uh, squashes are full of water. They average from the squashes of about 275 calories a pound up to white rice, which is mildly processed, uh, this is now up about 550 calories a pound. A typical starch, uh, which we call big starches, rice, beans, potatoes, those average right around 400 calories a pound. That's what they are. So brown rice is a little heavier. It's about 500 calories a pound. Squashes are 275. Oatmeal is about 325. The potato family is about 375. Beans are around 400. Just call it 400 calories a pound because it really doesn't make any difference. The, um, they are all very modest, lean, low fat, outstanding, high, high natural carbohydrate, low fat, intermediate level protein, fiber, water. This is outstanding natural food. And this is the backbone of the healthy diet. Okay, A backbone of a healthy vegetarian diet or any other diet is not vegetables. At 200 calories a pound, you can't eat enough of those to be the backbone of your diet. It's not fruit at 300 calories a pound. You're not gonna eat enough fruit to make that the backbone. It's gonna need to be the big starches. That's what it's gonna be. That's what the engine two diet is. That's what the camel diet is. 
That's what the Furman diet is. That's what the McDougal diet is. All of the big guys, uh, Neil Barnard, everybody. These are starch center diets that is what they are. They don't like that name sometimes because that name has, gets people upset, but the truth is that's what it is. Okay, and uh, we don't have to call them the starches, you call them rice, beans, potato, pasta, oats, corn, peas, all those things. Bananas are a starch at 400 calories a pound. Now, the, um, so now we see what happens as we start to move up the food chain here. We get to bread and cheese. Look at that, 1,700 calories a pound. Wow. So somebody eats a cheese sandwich and they, in fact, one of the more interesting things to think about is a McDonald's hamburger. This is actually an interesting consideration. What's on a McDonald's hamburger? Well, there's bread, white bread. There's mayonnaise, mustard, yeah, maybe some ketchup. There is a burger and there's a, maybe a piece of lettuce and maybe a tomato and a couple of pickles and cheese. If we look at the main components of that thing, the burger is the least calorie dense thing on that thing. It's not the main thing. Bread is up there at 1600 calories a pound. Cheese, 1700 calories a pound. Mayonnaise, 4000 calories a pound. Whoa, before we've even gotten to the ground meat, we've already had super high calorie density. Is it any wonder why America has gone through a process? Rick, Rick was talking about some stats, but I have to say those are self-selected uh, from people that answered that survey. The truth of the matter is, is that in the United States from about 1970 to now, the average person's weight has gained uh, about 28 pounds. Now it happened gradually. So, you know, it's about five pounds a decade. Uh, they just keep gaining weight over the last you know, 40 or 50 years. The, something along those lines, close to that might be a little bit more. That's amazing. Now, that's amazing. So if we start thinking about whether or not this was stress that was causing this, I think we can argue reasonably that it was just as stressful in 1972 as it is now, okay? Um, that people had just as many childhood issues in 1972 as they do now. Okay. So I think we can see very clearly that people snacked just as much in 1972 as they do now. So I think that we can start to get rid of other hypotheses and realize, no, there's only one thing that's happened. And the one thing that's happened is that the food has become more concentrated. The food has become increasingly processed. So the fast foods are now proliferate and all of the food uh, that sells is going to be food that is going to be higher and higher in calorie density. This shouldn't surprise us at all because this is nothing other than the energy conservation machinery of the instincts of the human leading its nose and snout into the least, uh, into the highest calorie density possible. So not only have we increased the calorie density, we have also processed the foods more so that they're softer, okay? And that uh, when they're softer, they're easier to chew and therefore less caloric energy goes into the digestive process. So all along the way, we've increased the effective calorie density and the calorie density itself as we have higher and higher average calorie densities leading to succeedingly higher and higher levels of fat on both men and women. 
Um, it is not terrible things that happen in childhood that women are wanting to gain weight or run away from their sexual attractiveness. No, no, uh, that would be a very strange thing indeed to argue when the men have gained exactly the same amount of weight as the females have gained in the last 50 years. No difference. Okay. So all of these psychobabble explanations are wrong. They're categorically wrong. This is not a psychologically motivated phenomenon. These are natural biological systems that organize behavior to eat the highest calorie density food in the environment. That's what it is. To battle against that, that is gonna require some pretty serious diligence and determination and knowledge. Uh, I borrowed this out of some McDougal book. I think, uh, I can't remember which one it was. It might've been the McDougal plan. There's what in theory 400 calories of oil would look like, 400 calories of chicken, 400 calories of plant food. Um, that's just a schematic. It isn't meant to be accurate. It's just meant to be in principle exactly how things would look. Okay. Here we have uh, US food consumption. We have refined and processed foods, i.e. foods that are now systematically higher in calorie density, sometimes by many factors over what a natural food would have been. So, uh, so typical processed food might be 1,500 to 2,000 calories a pound. Typical unprocessed uh, plant food would have been three, four, 500 calories a pound at most. So huge differences in calorie density. Uh, obviously, animal foods are you know, a huge component of the diet, 40% or so. Fruits and vegetables are now like 7%. Big deal. Somebody eats an apple now and then. Okay. Now, on my original chart of what's causing the problem, I had genes. And it turns out genes are an enormously important factor. But they're an important factor that has to be understood in a given context. So there's a field of study in psychology that I have, you can, you can only call it immense respect for, I don't know what you would call it, you just have to call it, what do you call it when it's just the truth, okay? I don't know what you call it. Uh, a lot of people are upset about it. They don't like to hear about it. It upsets them. Uh, uh, Dr. Jan Hawk and I, who's my collaborator on my new book, uh, we have a website called uh, Steam Dynamics. We have a special library called the Living Wisdom Library, where we actually go through the details of a great deal of the machinery of the human mind and how it works. And Dr. Hawk actually goes through an extensive explanation of what we call behavior genetics, okay? So behavior genetics is the nature of your personality, why your personality is the way it is. And one component of your personality is going to be, or the individual differences in people, is going to be your propensity to gain weight. Okay, in other words, that's a characteristic of the way your brain functions. And it's going to turn out that, that uh, the behavior geneticists uh, have, have shown us the undeniable fact that genetics is by far the most important determining factor in predicting anybody's weight from birth. So behavior geneticists can tell you within very close range how heavy you're going to be on your 60th birthday by what they can already tell about you early, super early. Okay? In fact, very soon, they'll be able to, by, by the end of the 2020s, they will be able to know how overweight you will be with a drop of blood, okay, after birth. That's how, that's how important the genes are in determining this. Now, don't despair. 
they're missing something. <laughs> and this chart is going to explain what they're missing. This chart is going to tell you that any outcome of any biological system is going to be an interaction between the genes and the environment. So how bad is your sunburn? Well, it depends on how much sun you got and it depends on how much melanin you got in your skin. That determines how much sunburn you've got, okay? Uh, how thick are the calluses on your hands? Well, depends on how much golf you've been playing you know, without a glove and depends on also the natural thickness of your skin in general, okay? It's your genes and the environment that determines the outcome. Genes, environment, outcome, okay? Now, so with respect to weight, if you measure it, you find out that genes are overwhelmingly dominating the show. They are responsible for 80% of the variance. I would don't try to explain what that means. It just means that they can predict very well what a person's weight is gonna be, you know, from very early on. Now, but is it determinative? No, because we said it's genes and environment. But I said, wait, but it's mostly genes. That's because everybody's environment is the same. Everybody in the United States has basically the same food environment. Whether you eat fried chicken or McDonald's burgers, uh, it doesn't really make any difference. It's the same calorie density. Okay? Whether you, you know, think that you should really be eating more fish and you think that that's how it should work, it doesn't really make any difference. The truth is, is that everybody's eating about the same calorie density, and that includes the vegetarian community. Vegetarian community eats basically the same calorie density as all the carnivores, okay? They just eat their calories made out of different stuff, but it's the same calorie density. Why? Because you're designed by nature to seek out the richest calorie density food in the environment. That is a biological imperative. The, the genes built you, and they are the past masters of the survival arts. They are designed to get you to do things that will increase your likelihood of biological success. For all time, that meant get the richest food in the environment, dummy. Don't make a mistake of eating an apple when somebody's handing you a burger. Don't make that mistake. That would be an error. Don't do it. And so human beings are naturally going to drift to a very rich diet. Okay. Now you might say, well, I don't just want to sit there with a barrel of ice cream, Doug. I actually would actually eat a cherry now and then. That's true. So you're not actually only designed to eat the richest food in the environment. That's one of several motivational factors with respect to food. Sometimes you like it crunchy. Sometimes you like it softer. Sometimes you like it hot. Sometimes you like it cold. There are in fact other features, but calorie density dominates the motivational machinery as it should, it needs to, okay? So therefore, pretty much everybody eats an overly artificially concentrated diet in the United States, okay? Basically everybody. I know half a dozen freaks that don't. I can give you their names. They're pretty fascinating, weird people. Good for them. <laughs> but essentially, all of the thin people, sans 2% of them, didn't deserve to be thin. This is just a natural interaction between their skinny genes and the environment. This chart explains this. So notice on the x-axis at the bottom, we have artificially concentrated food. Notice we have zero down at the origin. That's the stone age. 
That's where we came from. That's what the genes were designed in. That is where food is supposed to be. Food is not supposed to be heated, beaded, diced, chopped, repackaged, et cetera. That's not, that's a modern phenomenon. Okay? You were designed by nature to eat whole natural foods. That doesn't mean that you can't get some processed foods that are awfully healthy, awfully convenient, and some of them not even that artificially concentrated. You can, okay? However, the modern person eats a very artificially concentrated diet. They eat a diet that's over a thousand calories a pound. The species was designed by all accounts to eat a diet probably no more than 700 calories a pound. So the diet is significantly overly rich. Let's see what happens to the population. If you happen to be in the skinny genes part of the population, then if you eat a very rich diet, notice what happens to your fat stores. Over time, you will be a little tiny bit overweight. Oh, brother. You know, skinny Susie is now complaining because she's 126 pounds. And when she graduated from high school, she was 121. And she's been out of shape about it. Okay. Right. Well, she's five pounds fatter than she was 20 years ago. And that's because she has skinny genes. And those skinny genes have read the calorie count so brilliantly in her nervous system that she has actually hit it about right. Good for her. Okay. If she were to quote, go on a diet, we see what happens. She'd go from five pounds overweight to three pounds overweight. Uh, on, the, on the Y axis, she'd come down a little bit. Just draw a little line over from the medium, go up to medium and where it hits the skinny and then go over to the left. And we see that it's gonna come down. And then we can see that if she, if she eats a even healthier diet, or just look at the little, the little uh, regression line there. It comes down, look at how she has very few excess pounds. And then we go to the origin. We put her on a whole natural foods diet and she has no excess pounds. Her nervous system will obey the law of satiety. She will eat neither too much nor too little for optimum health. She will be in perfect condition with respect to her body composition. That is true. The same thing is true of our next person who has average genes. But if they are feeding on a diet that is very high in calorie density, look where they are. They're up an intermediate level of overweight. That's the average person in the United States. That's 30 extra pounds. We call that medium overweight at this point. Okay? We see that if they actually make a substantial difference in their behavior and they add some beans and rice, despite their paleo friends pulling their hair out and screaming that they're, that they're crazy, notice what happens that the average calorie density has dropped from high to medium and notice their fat storage has dropped up from medium down to about low. That's right. That's exactly what's gonna happen. Notice what happens if they go to a low artificially concentrated food. They just have some spaghetti once in a while and a few healthy crackers, but pretty well they're eating a whole natural foods diet. They're down at low artificial concentration in the food supply. Look where they are. Well, they've got maybe that, they've got the five extra pounds that the skinny people had on a high fat diet. So those two things are about the same now, but pretty well, they're in outstanding shape with average genes. That's a long ways from where our people are in the United States now as they carry around 30 or 40 extra pounds. Notice what happens if we take them back to the stone age, zero. They will be a little heavier than the skinny people by nature, they'll be a little bit more muscular. Um, uh, and possibly a little bit more fat stores, but their health will be stellar and they will be an outstanding uh, body condition. 
Now we're going to look at people with thick genes. These are girls that are naturally really curvy. These are guys that are naturally really big and strong. They all, these people look fabulous when they're 17, or at least they used to, um, but not anymore because they're eating super high artificially concentrated diets. And nowadays, by the time they're 17, they're in a lot of trouble. Okay. We see what happens to the excess fat stores. I didn't even draw up how high they could go. They can get huge. As Rip says, you might need a very a fancy stretcher to move them around. If you have very thick genes and you have a very rich diet, you're in a lot of trouble. Okay. I had a woman earlier this year uh, when COVID started, she, had, she didn't have to keep going to her workplace and she decided, you know what? It's time for me to get serious. And so she did this diet properly. And she went from about 280 pounds down to about 155 in nine months. That woman lost 125 pounds in nine months. That's what happened. She's a walking example of somebody with hefty genes crashing down the hefty gene line all the way to zero. She was super clean. She didn't get one inch out of line and look what happened. At 155, she's pretty tall. So she's not yet at zero. So last time I talked to her, it was still dropping, uh, but that's where it's headed. It's headed to 138 or whatever that's gonna be for her height and her natural biology, but she's almost there. That is how this works. That is the nature of the gene environment interaction with respect to food. The behavior geneticists don't actually quite grasp or understand that, well, they sort of do, that the extraordinarily rich, uh, uh, extraordinarily rich diet is magnifying the genetic effect. It's making the genetic effect look bigger than it would naturally be. So, um, so anyway, that's not that important. The important thing to us is it doesn't matter what your genes are. If you do the right thing, look where, the, look where your line goes when you get rid of the artificially concentrated food. It goes to zero. That's where it goes. Okay. And if you get close, if you get to low, look where you go. You wind up somewhere between low and moderate on excess fat. That's not too bad. If you were 282 pounds nine months ago, and now you're 155 pounds and you're five foot seven, are you, how, how unhappy are you? Okay. The answer is, well, if you're really unhappy about it and bent out of shape, well then go from low to zero and keep at it and we'll take off the rest. But the the beauty is, is that the genes don't dictate that you are heavy. The genes simply dictate the nature of your gene line. They, they dictate the nature of your particular story with respect to artificially concentrated food. Okay. How did this happen? Well, it turns out that human beings have gone through periods where there were famines. So one of those things, for example, and we all have, all of our ancestors have. Now, my ancestors, just to let you know, if you're a person that's thicker, my ancestors had it easier in the last 500 years than yours did. I know. Why? Because I've got skinny genes. Uh, that means that these skinny genes, uh, on average, if we were to catalog my ancestry, we would find out that I didn't have a famine anytime recently, probably in the past 10 or 20 generations, where you did. So a bunch of skinny people that were built like me got wiped out in that famine. You didn't get wiped out because your relatives had some extra fat stores on and they made it through the famine. We see this in dramatic terms in, in the South Sea Islands as people hopped from island to island to leave the chief who was macking on their girlfriend. And so they got on a boat and left 
And then they sailed across the sea and a bunch of them starved to death on the way. But who met each of the island? The ones that started out a little bit thicker. And then they went from the next island over to the next island over, 200 miles away, to the next island over 200 yard miles away. And eventually they got to where? Hawaii. Okay. And when you get to Hawaii, what are you going to see there? You're going to see very, very, very thick genes. Okay. There's not very many people with a lot of native Hawaiian blood that are skinny by nature. And that's because those genes went through an evolutionary sieve where only the thick ones survived. And so depending upon your particular ancestral history, you could have been from Scotland. You could have been one of the people who's, who's uh, you've got a bunch of genes that came through a, a, a problem there a couple hundred years ago. You've got many more fat genes than I have. So if we eat the same processed food, you're 40 pounds overweight and I'm two pounds overweight. That's genes. That's how they work. That's what happened. This is absolutely not your fault. It's not stress. It's not your childhood. It's not unresolved issues. It's nothing of the kind. Okay. You snack more. Well, everybody snacks. What are you snacking on? If you were snacking on carrots, it wouldn't add the weight to you. No. The problem, even though we see things like um, uh, snacking, the truth is it's what you're snacking on. And all of us are ultimately going to eat to satiation. But if you've got crackers in there, these crackers are 1,600 calories a pound, and you've got the genes for being overweight, you're going to be overweight. That's how that works. All right. Last couple slides. Um, after I invented this, somebody pointed out that Yowl is not spelled Y-O-W-E-L. It's Y-O-W-L. <laughs> Oh, well, I hadn't been reading enough book about dogs. All right. So yowl circuits. I made this up. You're overweight, eat less. When you have excess fat on your body, you actually have uh, fat in those cells and you have a, uh, a sensor in there that will detect that the fat levels are too high. And so as a result, uh, there will be an excretion of leptin, a hormone out of those fat cells that will... Uh, be read by the hypothalamus to tell the hypothalamus that you're overweight. So fantastic check and balance system. And so our ancestors occasionally got overweight. How? Well, the salmon and the nuts, you know, everything came into season at just the right time and we got lucky. And so we started gorging on that food and by God, we actually gained weight. We got kind of fat. Well, when that would happen, there would be a check and balance in case the rich food continued. And that would be these circuits essentially get turned on. And what it does is it reduces the hunger drive a little bit. Now it's not designed to face the modern food supply of 1400 calories a pound food. It was designed to face the ancient temporary system where the food supply might've gotten to 900 calories a pound for a while and people gained a little bit of weight. That's why even though everybody that is overweight has the yowl circuits on 24 seven and they're attempting to push down the hunger drive and they are, but they're only pushing it down so far because that's how it's designed. It's like a go-kart when you were a kid, it would only go about eight miles an hour. Like you put it, you'd floor it all the way to the floor. It just wouldn't go any further. The yowl circuits only go down so far. So the people that you see now that are hundred pounds overweight without the yowl circuit, they would have been 200 pounds overweight. The yellow circuit put a cap on it, but it doesn't drive them all the way down to where they should. Why? Because it wasn't designed to do such draconian measures. 
But if this is why it is though, that you do not need to try to consciously eat less than you need to. This is why when I see portion control as something that's being trumpeted by dietitians, doctors, and any other gurus, I just want to pull my hair out and scream. No, there is no portion control. There's no portion control in nature. We've got 300,000 species that aren't having any problem at all regulating their intake. How come they don't have a problem? The answer is you don't either. The problem is not that you should portion control. The problem is you need to control the content of what it is that you eat. If you control the content of what it is that you eat, you're designed by nature to eat to satiety. And you can and you should. And you let the yowl circuits take care of the fact that they will knock off a part of your hunger drive to regulate you back to optimum weight. So you don't have to. That's why we call this losing weight without losing your mind. If you try to lose weight by joining the Superbird Health Club and eat less than you want to eat and then exercise more, all you're going to do is to cause the hypothalamus to scream that you should be eating. And sooner or later, you're going to sleepwalk into the pantry at 4 a.m. and rob all of the kids of Pop-Tarts out of there in about 15 minutes. That's what's going to happen. You're going to be driven to eat to satiety. We want you to eat to satiety, but we need you to make correct choices so that you're eating food of appropriate natural calorie density. If you do that, it will take care of itself. My lady that lost 125 pounds this year ate to satiety. She did not consciously restrict. This was not some Herculean crazy effort to try to stop herself from eating, not even close. She trusted the process. She trusted these, this leadership that we have in this arena. She ate whole natural foods and she lost 125 pounds in nine months. And she's not the only one. Okay. New religion. Well, if you are pretty much, we don't need to be uh, perfect and outstanding. We need to be good. But if you're one of these people who's got some pretty thick genes and you're having trouble shaking the last 10 or 20 or 30 pounds, then I have a new religion for you. And the religion is that you eat salad first, vegetable second, and your concentrated carbs third. We want to have a balance because concentrated carbs are the richest thing on the plate. And if, you, uh, if by some chance you are so efficient uh, that you remain uh, somewhat overweight in spite of, of eating a really healthy diet, then the thing to do is to actually do this. You want to reduce the overall calorie density, perhaps by adding a little bit more of the lower calorie dense foods. That's all. Psychological. You know, um, uh, ever since the pleasure trap, the pleasure trap was a, a statement. The reason why people are having trouble uh, losing weight, getting healthy, etc., this is not because they have psychological issues. They have psychological issues because they've got health challenges and weight challenges. That is true. It works the other direction. It is psychologically miserable and frustrating to be looked at by slender people or your boss or potential mates as a second-class citizen. It's less attractive and has psychological problems. Okay. This is brutal. So of course there are psychological issues, but they go one direction. Okay. Psychological issues do not cause animals to eat more. That is not what happens. 
To test this hypothesis, there's been, of course, many animal studies. And in one of those studies, the uh, uh, experimenters feeding rats, appropriate rat child, were all regulating their weight perfectly. But then they added breaded chocolate and put it in the cage. And within a month, the average rat had gained, no, it was two months and 60 days. The average rat had gained 49% of its body weight. That's what happened. To try to further then explain how difficult this is to shake it, why the pleasure trap, the allure of the rich food is so profound. A second study was done a few years later. And in this study, they took rats and fed them their normal healthy rat chow. And then what they did was for a month, they brought in all this rich food, basically a McDonald's diet, French fries, little chunks of chocolate, hamburger, bread, mayonnaise, whatever. And the rats ate and of course began to get obese and a whole host of health problems. And then they did something interesting. They pulled that food out and they put the other food back. They wanted to see what would happen. And it turns out um, that the average rat, when the healthy food returned, the average rat refused to eat for 14 days. That's incredible. They basically said, it's not worth it. I'm gonna hold out for the good stuff. And in fact, it was reported off the record that one of the rats raised a paw and gave a gesture to one of the experiment. <laughs> so that is the story. This is known as Occam's razor in philosophy. The simplest explanation is usually the best. The simplest explanation is not that we've had a cultural revolution in the last 30 years leading to more stress, you know, abuse issues, psychological damage or anything. No, no, the simplest explanation is that the food got richer. We know it did. You can go back and look at the records. The food got richer, the food got more processed, Food got more convenient and easier. Less and less whole natural food was eaten over time. And as that happened, America got obese, okay? That's what our collective problem is. That's what your individual problem is. You don't have anything in the world wrong with you. All you have that's wrong is your environment. Your environment is in enticing you into a trap because you're designed by nature to walk into it. You weren't built to beat this trap. This is a man-made trap. It's the equivalent of cigarettes, it's the equivalent of heroin, it's the equivalent of cocaine, it's the equivalent, this is what it is, okay? It's a low-grade drug, the rich food, and the low-grade drug of the rich food pulls people in and undermines their health and happiness, okay? And that's what the pleasure trap is. The solution is to grit your teeth, follow somebody like Rip, follow this kind of leadership, join a gang, combat against it, and walk a different path. And that, folks, is how you're gonna beat this. You have to be perfect. No, this is a piece of carrot cake. I was, uh, I was diligently eating very healthy food at a little place called the Redwood Cafe. I'd always eat the vegan wrap. And then one day I decided not to be a saint and there was some vegan carrot cake right there in the freezer. And I said, I'll take a piece of that. Right, so I ate one. Then the next time I went in, I ate another one. And the next time in, I went another one. And about 13, 14 times in, they would always know, oh, here comes the 
the vegan wrap guy with the carrot cake. So then I went out to speak on the pleasure trap uh, with Dr. Alan Goldhammer and we were coming back into town and he called his wife, Jennifer and said, Hey, do you have dinner for us? And she said, no, you guys got to go eat dinner yourself. I'm all done for the night. And uh, we're driving past the Redwood Cafe and Alan goes, well, let's go to the Redwood Cafe. <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, well, this could get a little tricky. So when I go up to order, go up to stand there and order, I said, I'll have, I'm just going to have the vegan wrap. And the girl looks right at me and says, and a piece of carrot cake? <laughs> and I said, no, uh, just the vegan wrap. And she said, are you sure? <laughs> so that is my story about not being perfect. I'm not perfect. Uh, I cut down the carrot cake after that, just out of sheer guilt reverberation. Don't expect yourself to be perfect. Just do a good job, folks. And if you do a good job and follow this path, you will find the life you deserve. We have some questions, Doug, for you. So let's dive in with those. And uh, we'll start with this one. So I know you're saying that stress doesn't lead to eating, but, but a lot of people are saying they've been stressed over the last however many months and they've had these cravings. So if people have cravings, how do you suggest they handle cravings? Okay. Um, here's, here's a better way to actually probably understand this. And that is that, that um, you're always designed to be aiming towards the richer food. That's, that's the default in the system. So the, if you're stressed, you're probably just less likely to be able to defend it. So that's probably the, a better way to actually explain what it is that you're observing. The, um, you, you only have so much inherent self-discipline. And so uh, as a result, if you get overwhelmed, you've sort of got less defenses against what is the default tendency anyway. So when people are asking things like that, my, my first, the, the first decision is that sort of the stress response is going to be a, a, a brief lowering of resolve. And you may very well look for food. Some people do. Uh, there are a lot of times that's why you'll see baseball players are going to be chewing like the chew tobacco or you'll see basketball players chewing gum. You could have a low-grade stress and you're, uh, you, you want to kind of relieve that. And if you digest a little bit of food, it will actually give you a little bit of endorphin as a result of that and it will calm you down a little bit. Now, notice, however, some very important stipulations there. Like let's suppose that you are in a house and what there is there is oatmeal and then there's some vegetable soup with beans and rice and soup from last night. And then there's some bananas on the counter. And there's some, uh, there's some salad fixings in the refrigerator. And there's some, et cetera. Okay, but there's no crap. So if there's no crap, then where's the stress eating going to go? Answer, nowhere. The stress isn't going to last until you get your car keys and then get in the car and then drive over to the, the Safeway and then get a bunch of crap and then come home and eat it. Come on, give me a break. That's not stress. That is a decided, motivated sequence of actions seeking out a dopamine hit. 
It's not stress eating. So what are we talking about? We're talking about that you've got an adulterated environment. And so if you have an adulterated environment, you are, you're courting, you're courting slippage in the system. Okay. No problem. Of course you are. And I'm not saying that, uh, that your environment has to be clean. I'm just saying that if you're an alcoholic and you've got some alcohol in the house, it's more likely that you're in trouble. That's all. And, uh, and so when people say, well, I've had cravings now because I'm stressed. No, you haven't. You've got, it isn't because you're stressed. You have cravings specifically for the following reason. And that is what cravings are is they're it actually are, are derived from a couple of different psychological processes. But one critical uh, component of those processes is memory function. And so it's going to turn out that, uh, so for example, it's interesting how, looking at that Caricate slide because I, I hadn't looked at that slide in probably a couple, three years since the last time I gave this talk. And I haven't craved carrot cake. I haven't had a piece of carrot cake in probably five years. Why? I didn't have it recently. If I didn't have it recently, then I don't have a memory structure and the memory goes into a decay function and it fades, okay? If you're having cravings for something, I don't know, graham crackers. Why do I think that you probably had graham crackers in the last three days? Because if you did, then you would have a memory structure in there that is not yet faded out, okay? And this isn't meaning you're uh, evil. It just means that you, you, you have been in the pleasure trap three days ago, and therefore the memories are very, very hot. This is how animal nervous systems should work. If you're a fox and you got a chicken out of somebody's tent house last week, don't go up and down the street looking at all the other chicken houses. Go for the one that you got one from recently. It will save you time and energy, okay? Um, the memory systems are designed by nature to go through decay uh, the longer it was between the event and, and what it is that the great experience was. So if you saw Gone with the Wind last night for the first time, you've got the music reverberating through your head and you've got scenes flowing through your head all day long. But two weeks from now, you won't. You will have far less of those memories going through your head. A year from now, you'll remember the general plot and you'll remember something about the people You'll remember some things and you'll remember some scenes, but you will have forgotten 90% of the scenes in that movie. If we go 10 years, you can't hardly, you'll just be a, a few little snapshots. What's happening there? Memory is decaying. Thank God, because if that weren't that way, no alcoholic would ever get out of that trap, ever. You have to understand that when an alcoholic puts down the bottle, and it turns out that it's day one of a successful run. It'll probably be the 27th time they attempted to do this. But if they are one of the lucky ones that actually gets out, they, this will be a, they won't know whether this is day one of anything special or not. It's just a day where they put down the bottle. The next day, the cravings are intense. Okay, Why? Because the nervous system is searching for a high dopamine hit that it got yesterday or two days ago. It knows where there's a high dopamine hit. That dopamine hit is higher than any other thing that it could get naturally because it's a supernormal stimuli poured on a brain that's genetically susceptible to hyperstimulate the dopamine pathway behind that alcohol. That's about 5% of humans have that genotype. And if you've got it, by God, that's what it does. It's like throwing gas on a motivational fire. So on day three, what are you having? Cravings. 
Of course you have cravings. Why? Because you've got memory structures in there telling you, go find the dopamine for God's sakes. Can you imagine how tough that is if you've got a wine cellar? Okay, that's going to be a big problem. But what if you're locked up in rehab with all the stars at the Betty Ford Clinic? Oh, well, it's a little different. As long as, as your, your roommate isn't some cool person that is getting stuff smuggled to them, you're going to be in pretty good shape. Why? Because day four is going to come along. And what's going to happen? The memories are starting to fade just like going with the wind. Now, it hasn't faded that much in four days. We're only 96 hours past. But what about five days, six days, seven days, eight days, 20 days, 30 days? 30 days at AA, they give you a chip. Why? Because you earned a trophy. That is tremendous. We also know that day 31 is going to be easier than day five. Why? Decay function. The, the, the animal basically says, gosh, there must not be any alcohol in this environment. In other words, that's what the Stone Age brain is calculating. Huh, for some reason we can't get access to that resource. And so therefore it's fading out, okay? Uh, if, if the cravings remained at year 10, the way they are at month one, nobody would ever be the problem. It would be impossible. The only reason you've ever met anybody that put down the bottle 10 years ago and is operating completely fine today and can even sit at a table with you and you can pour a glass of wine and they're actually okay, the only reason that's true is that the memories are now faint. It's gone with the wind way back in the recesses of their mind. Okay. It's still there. It's still dangerous. They still have the genotype, but they are not experienced the same thing. So when I hear people say, Oh, well, I just had cravings. It's like, what do I do about the cravings? That doesn't seem fair. Isn't that psychologically stressful? No, actually what happened was you haven't been sufficiently diligent to earn the fact that you don't have the cravings. Okay. That's the truth. So your job is to batten down the hatches. And unfortunately, the, there is no magic here. That the very same thing that gets an alcoholic out of alcoholism is the very same thing that gets a carrot cake or out of carrot cake. Okay. What, what's going to happen is you have to be diligent and you have to, be, uh, have, to, uh, have to squash the self-indulgent tendencies. You have to do that by the white knuckling frustration. Oh, well, trust me. White knuckling frustration that involves getting out of junk food isn't in the same class with the white knuckling that goes on of getting out of cigarettes or alcohol. It's not even close. Okay. It's annoying. It's frustrating. And we can all sit around in a circle and whine about it. But folks, it's not even remotely close. To even suggest that, that it's on the same plane is an insult to any hero that ever got out of alcoholism. Okay. You have to be a warrior to get out of that trap. You have to be determined to get out of this trap. If you are determined, you can do it. And then the cravings will fade. That's the answer. Doug, fantastic. Thank, thanks. So are you, are you cool taking one or two more questions? Sure, please. Absolutely. Fantastic. Fantastic. So here's one by Carol, Carol uh, Curler. She wants to know, Doug, how do we know or do we need to know how many fat receptors we have? <laughs> I love it. That's great, Carol. Yeah, everybody would like to know. No, uh, you don't need to know. All I need to ask you is, you know, what was your weight in junior high school? 
So if you had a weight problem in junior high school, I know that you've got thick genes. Okay. So, uh, oh, well, so, so such is life. Okay. If you were skinny in junior high school, then you're probably, you, you don't, you're not checkmated. You don't have quite as tough of a gene line. Okay. So yeah, there's no way to count and no way to worry. All you, all you got to do is eat the right food. And I can tell you that the following kinds of things are important to realize that depend upon your genetics um, and, and a couple other factors, but most importantly, your genetics, it will determine sort of how quickly and easily the weight is lost. So very typically people will lose between um, not uncommonly, if you're significantly overweight, if you're 50 pounds overweight or more, it's not uncommon for you to lose maybe a pound a week. Okay. Pound a week isn't, is an uncommon thing. My gal this year lost a lot more than that. She lost better than two pounds a week. That was unusual, uh, but she was also very heavy to start out with. So a pound a week, it's useful for you to know that because people are sometimes expecting huge quick weight losses. And when it doesn't happen, they get frustrated and they, they jump ship. You have to understand that a pound a week is a massive morphological change for an animal. Uh, for you, it would be you know, 52 pounds in a year, which would be a, an incredible adjustment for the body to go through. Okay, so the, um, you know, some people fast, but most people not. A lot of people, by the way, particularly a lot of women that I've worked with that have intermediate excess weight, it's more like two pounds a month. Okay, so two pounds a month. And once again, they're upset about it and bent out of shape. But this was Chef AJ's story. Chef AJ uh, lost 54 pounds in 27, in 27 months. Okay, So this was a couple pounds a month, more at the beginning, less at the end, slower at the end. This is typical. So understand that a pound, we, we think a pound is nothing. We think a pound is like, oh, it's a pound. Oh, I lost three pounds. Hardly worth it. That's incredible. Okay. This is that, this thing, this is a big thing. This is a liter. Okay. It's a big thing of water. Here's a, here's a little one. Here's a big one. That's two pounds of fat. That's a lot. Okay. You lose one of those a month. That's phenomenal. That's a whole box of these things in a year for goodness sakes. So, no, the uh, uh, a pound of fat is 4,000 calories. Your nervous system is going to be very aggressive at trying to shed maybe 500 calories a day. That would be very aggressive. And so that's going to take eight days or so to do. So three to four pounds a month is outstanding success. And so therefore, you know, if you've only lost three pounds in the last month uh, and it's not working, hey, it is working beautifully. So you, you need to judge this, say, 90 days in. Where were you 90 days in relative to where it is that you started? So right now, let's suppose you're doing a pretty good job on your uh, NG2 diet, but you're not doing great. And you're wondering where it's going. Well, what you do is measure yourself three days in a row, take the average. Let's say it's 162 pounds. So now I want you to not do anything different. Do your same program, stick with it, don't bail out. Uh, and then we're going to look at this, you know, 90 days out, 90 days out, let's push your 157. It's working. It's absolutely working. Five pounds is huge. Okay. So that, that means you are doing the right things and you're doing them well enough. 
If you're 162 pounds, then we're going to be like, well, it's not good enough to get you where you want to go. You're going to have to tighten screws. But the point is, is that people generally in and around weight loss are so anxious. They're so frustrated. They're looking daily for feedback. You cannot find daily feedback on the scale. You cannot. Let me explain why. Almost 100% of the variance in weight from day to day does not have anything to do with fat. You, you're even at most uh, uh, an obese person that is losing a phenomenal amount of fat is losing maybe five ounces a day. Okay, their weight because they're 300 pounds is varying by three pounds a day. So their weight is varying by 48 ounces, but they lost five ounces. So what if they the weight the scale says they gained two pounds? If they ate properly, they didn't gain two pounds of fat. They just got more poop in them and a little more fluid and some more glycogen. They're down five ounces of fat, but you can't see it. How can you see it? By doing it for a couple of months. A couple of months from now, they're not going to be 300 pounds. They're going to be 282 pounds. That's how we tell that despite what the scale did from day to day, there was a trend for the weight to go down. So don't be flipped out when you eat a couple of potatoes and your weight goes up the next day, that is irrelevant. All that happened was you stored a little glycogen. You did not get fat, okay? The way out of this is to do what Rip says. If you do that, you will be successful. Great, so I got one more question for you. Sure. I need a relatively quick answer because we want to, guys, we're gonna go a little bit over here with, uh, with, with, with Amy and John, but. We got, I got two questions. I'm going to combine them and they're related to nuts and seeds and avocados, as I'm sure you can expect. Yeah. This is from Barbara Baxter. Mm -hmm. So the first question was, was really from Carol Curler. Now we got Barbara Baxter. We like the alliterations here. Yeah. Yeah. She wants to, she's saying, I'm confused about the role of nuts, avocados, seeds, olives. Does this mean I can never eat them again? And then, and then the other question related to these things is, don't you need nuts, seeds, and avocados? Don't you need fat to absorb fat-soluble nutrients? So maybe you can combine those two questions. You don't need any of those fats, those fat stores. So the doctors that have said that is true are wrong. They're categorically wrong, okay? It's not true. Okay, so uh, I've uh, explored that in other, uh, other webinars that I've done. I don't want to reiterate that here. I'm just giving you a categorical answer. Not true, wrong bogus, incorrect inferences on the science, <laughs> off with its head, okay? You don't never need to eat a nut or a seed or an avocado for the rest of your life, okay? Unnecessary, not in no particular way useful. They're just as healthy as any other natural food. They're not healthier than any other natural food. Okay, now, now the question is uh, for our Barbara Baxter. Ah! <laughs> for Barbara, the answer is, of course, you can eat these things, um, but it depends upon your genetics, how many you can get away with them, how much you can get away with, and what it will do to your natural fat equilibrium. So uh, the average, uh, we believe from anthropological studies that, that the human being is, is well designed to eat a diet somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 calories a pound, okay? There has been, there's been some some of the whole natural food type docs and computations have, have driven that down to 560. And so, but you're seeing not, not a gross 
difference of opinion here. In other words, the anthropologists actually out in the field believe that it looks like it's 700. Uh, our diet gurus are thinking more, it might be one notch less. Fine. I want you to now think about the diet that we're encouraging. The raw salad vegetables are 100. The cooked vegetables are 200. The fruits, 300. The starches are 400. We are cutting out the meat, which is 800 to 1200. We're cutting out the processed carbohydrates, the dried carbohydrates that are 1500, 1600. We're, uh, now the question is, where, how are we going to get a diet at 600 calories a pound if all the stuff that we're talking about is less? And somebody would reasonably say, well, if we're not going to eat meat, what the heck are we going to eat that is higher calorie density? And uh, to that, I would say, that's where it's reasonable to have variable amounts of those foods in there, okay? So I rarely, just like my, my own story doesn't mean anything, but I hardly ever eat anything that has a nut or a seed in it. That's neither good nor bad thing. That's just personal preference, okay? But I will eat, for example, pasta, and that's a processed food, 900 calories a pound. I will do that. Uh, what do I think about that pasta in terms of caloric density? Not a problem. Trust me, there's no oil on it. There's tomato sauce at 200 calories a pound. That's what tomatoes are. And there's going to be some broccoli and, uh, or, or some asparagus in there that's 200 calories a pound. So by the time I'm done, my pasta is probably six or 700 calories a pound. That's fine. That's reasonable. That's right in the kill zone for how human beings would operate. Avocado is 900 calories a pound. It's been seen as if it were a nut but it's not. Nuts are way up at 2,500. They're extraordinarily rich. Uh, it also appears that our ancestors ate non-trivial non amount of honey uh, at, at 1,800 calories a pound. So when you start to realize that our ancestors actually ate meat, they ate honey, they may have gotten a few avocados, darn few. They ate some nuts and seeds, darn few. We, those are the rich foods that piled themselves on top of the rice, beans, potatoes, fruit, and vegetables. What, so what we can do, and we're reasonably allowed to do if you've got anything close to reasonable genetics, is it's legitimate for you to eat some of the richer foods, particularly the plant-based healthy foods. That, that to me is fine, okay? But you have to then watch your waistline. That's what you have to watch. So you have to decide, you know, if you're gonna eat a chunk of vegan carrot cake, how often and how thin do you want to be? That's, that's the issue. Is it, uh, and so every single person is going to have individual differences. If you happen to have the ego that says, by God, I'm going to be 120 pounds, you know, and I'm taking no prisoners. And oh my goodness, I'm 250 pounds now. And so we know you have very thick genes and we hear that you are a fire breathing dragon and you want to be 120 pounds, well then guess what? No avocados and nuts and seeds for you, <laughs> okay? The rest of us don't necessarily have to play that tight on those foods. So the, those are variable issues. Doug, that all makes, that all makes a lot of sense. Thanks, thank you so much. So with that, everybody, uh, I'm gonna say, Doug, this, is, this has been, fantastic two hours. Really appreciate you taking time uh, out of your afternoon slash evening to be with us, to talk about how we can lose weight without losing our mind. It's absolutely, you. the way you have 
pieced all this lecture together is absolutely brilliant. For everybody that's out there, Doug has probably close to 30 different lectures and uh, he puts them together in such a very creative, artistic way <laughs> that, that keeps us coming back for more. One of the first questions, Doug, was, I just love Doug's artwork. Is it for sale anywhere? <laughs> Only in museums. Only in museums. <laughs> love it. Love it. All right. Uh, Doug, one last thing. Is, yeah. If people want to connect with you, is there a, a way that they can connect with you? Yeah, then go to Esteem Dynamics. That's one word, Esteem Dynamics, like self-esteem, Esteem Dynamics website. On that website, I've got a bunch of those videos and uh, webinars so they can feast on those. And then we have a special little paid section uh, where you can sign up for some other stuff that Dr. Jen Hawk and I do. So it's all there at esteemdynamics.com. There we go. Hey, hey everybody. So uh, I, I apologize about it, the technical difficulties that I'm having right now. But it is time for us to move on. I hope that you uh, will bear with us here. We have a very, very special treat for you right now. I'd like to introduce uh, our Plant Strong coaches, uh, John Fitzgerald and Amy Mackey, uh, to join us in sharing uh, one of their talks. It's on mindset mastery. Um, this is really one of the key pillars of our Rescue 10X Mindset Mastery program. Our next session kicks off June 15th. And I want to personally invite all of you to join us if you feel like you could benefit from some really dynamic group coaching and then also a very, very fierce amount of community support. This is a 10-week program. It's only offered a handful of times each and every year. John and Amy have been doing this now for three years. They are doing a marvelous job with this. And it's really designed to tackle all of the hurdles that most of us face over the course of moving through our day-to-day -day lives and how we can have success with the Plant Strong lifestyle. You're going to learn to build all these daily habits uh, along with building momentum over the course of these, these 10 weeks that, that you can then apply over the course of your days going forward. So with that, I'm going to, I'm going to plug out here and turn it over to John and Amy. Take it away, you guys, thanks. Uh, all right, thank you, Rip. Hey, uh, everybody, thanks for being here. And Doug, what an incredible lecture. I mean, it was a lot to absorb. And as some of you pointed out in the comments, fortunately it's being recorded and you can watch the recording and get all that. So Doug talked to you a lot about the science and the evolutionary side of weight loss. So uh, I'm John Fitzgerald. I'm one of the Plant Strong Engine 2 coaches for the Rescue 10X Mindset Mastery Program, along with Amy Mackey, who you'll hear from in a second. And so now you know the science and the evolution behind it. So we wanna to talk to you a little bit about how you now choose the right foods and how you do it over and over and over again. Amy. You know, when you approach everything that Doug just talked to us about, about calorie density and about all of the, the super inflated foods that are out there and all of those things, the foods we eat do matter. But the difference that it makes when you can actually stick to the plan is when you change your mindset as well. Because ultimately, if you believe that you can do something, you can, but you can't attack it the same way that you always do. We could give you a meal plan. We could say, these are the foods you need to eat, go. You can do this, but there's a hitch. 
If you tackle it the same way that you always have with the same habits that you've had, with the same effects that uh, come from stress, when you are going after something um, just because you, you, you need to feel better, you had a bad day, when you're tackling those habits the way that you've always tackled them, your meal plan doesn't really matter because you're not changing. So what the 10X program actually does is teaches you how to change the habits so you can come at it from a different approach. Yeah, and, and creating the habits is it's definitely something we talk about in the Rescue 10X program. But before we do that, we really start to work with you on your mindset because when you need to create new habits and make things permanent, you have to have the mindset part first. So what do we mean by mindset? Well, mindset is really your thoughts or attitudes towards anything that you're doing in your life. There we go. So a fixed mindset is the fact that you just take things as it is, right? They're, it is what it is, right? They're all saying it is what it is right? I can't do this. I've tried before and I failed, or I'm not very good at new things, or you know what? I kind of like what I'm doing, so I'm not going to change. A growth mindset is one where you think you have control. And Amy and I will tell you, you do have control over what you're doing and what you're eating. And so with the growth mindset, you might say things like, I love a good challenge, or you know what? I, I slipped up, but that's okay. I know what to do. I'm going to get back on track and I know a better way to attack it. And the great part of it is, is you are not fixed or growth all the time, right? This is a continuum and you are different parts of that continuum in different parts of your life, whether it's in your relationships, your job, your partnership, your, your kids, your different mindsets. So the key to remember with mindsets is that mindsets can be changed. And that's what the Rescue 10X program is all about. It's creating that mindset change so that you then have that foundational piece and you can start to build on that and start to create those habits that will then take you to those new results. Absolutely. Because if you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right, right? So if you start to decide that you're going to do something new, whether it is changing your diet, working on fitness, working on being more mindful, maybe starting meditation or journaling, whatever it is that you're setting out to tackle, if you have the mindset that this is what you're going to do, you're going to look at it as an adventure and not as something of deprivation or a chore that you have to do. If you actually come at this from a different angle, you can feel really successful right from the beginning because it is truly setting out little goals for yourself about what you're going to do. Maybe you're going to write a journal entry today. Maybe you're going to eat greens today because you didn't eat them last week. Whatever that little thing is that you want to change and keep building on to feel that success, it all starts with the mindset that you bring to the table. So even though you might have something in your, in your bowl that's really wonderful and healthy, how you show up to your plate really does matter. You're absolutely right, Amy. And here's, here's the key is that whenever you make a change like this, it's not going to go perfectly. And so that's why when we work with you in the Rescue Tenic program, we're giving you tools and techniques and, and tips on how to make it happen and how to make it work for you and your lifestyle. So it's not some cookie cutter program where we make you fit into our program. We make the program so that it works for you in your lifestyle. And we'll be honest with you, along the way, you're going to fail, whether that's a little slip up or a big slide back or you start spiraling. But the point is with the Rescue 10X program is you'll have the tools and the techniques. You will have a supportive community that's there to pick you up because even the most famous and well uh, even the most famous and the most successful people you know, whether it's in sports, business, wherever, they've had failures along the way. Michael Jordan, Thomas Edison, these people all failed along the way to their successes because failure is a way to learn, right? Fail is an acronym, first attempt in learning. And if you don't fail, if you don't learn along the way, 
you're not going to make it permanent. And unless you've got the right mindset, unless you've got the mindset closer on the growth end of the spectrum, you're going to have trouble making any change like this in your life. And so when you go to make a change and you've tried it before and you maybe failed and you think I'm broken, you're not broken. You just didn't set the mindset right. You didn't get the mindset foundational piece in place before you started to make those changes. And that's what the 10-week program is all about, is getting you to a point where that foundation is strong and solid, and then you build off of that, and that's how you make those changes permanent. With the tools that we have in the Rescue 10X program, combined with the weekly coaching calls that we have every week via Zoom, in addition to that, the community that's built in, you've seen some of the people in our community tonight posting in the group, uh, in, in the chat here for this event. Our 10X community is so supportive and will help wrap you in the, the cheerleader sense of being to help get you there. Because look, a lot of us are doing this alone. We don't have supportive families at home who are actually following the plan with us. If you were in a house divided, it can be really challenging to find that support or have somebody be excited about the meal that you made tonight. That's one of the really great things about the Rescue 10X community is because there are people there always around there's somebody in there to say, wow, that meal looks great. Or, wow, can I get that recipe? Or, you know what? I know you had a really bad day, but hang in there because we can just work through this. I've been there. This is what happened with me. There's so much group support and so much um, knowledge because there are people in our Rescue 10X community who have done this before. Our 10X community is a rich source and resource for you to really feel connected to a community that understands why you're here why this can be challenging, and definitely they know the benefits of what can happen when you really stick with this. Yep, Amy, and, and I think the key, one of the key takeaways from, from this little talk about mindset is the fact that you can change your mindset. The part of you that is doubting yourself, even right now as you're listening to Amy and I talk, and you're like, oh, I don't know if this is even going to work for me. Trust us. There's a lot of members of the Rescue 10X that are still part of the Rescue 10X, but they had doubts themselves. They doubted they could do it. They didn't believe that this was going to be the time that it stuck. And we can tell you after three years that the people that put the work in, right? If you put the work into the Rescue 10X program, the Rescue 10X program will work for you. And so we're here to tell you that if you believe in yourself, if you think that now is the time, if you just listen to Doug Lyle talk and you're like, I get it. I get what he's talking about. I just don't know how to make it work for me. I just don't know how to make it work in my lifestyle. Guess what? That's what the Rescue 10X program is all about. Taking the science, taking the seven-day rescue science, taking Dr. Esselstyn's talks and everything that he talks about with the endothelia cells and making that work for you and making it not just science, but making it real life. And in your day-to-day -day life, make it something that you do over and over and over again. And what's that called? That's called a habit. And when you start creating those strong, healthy habits, guess what? You are on your way to a healthier self in the future. So Amy, let's give them a quick rundown of just what exactly the Rescue 10X includes. Absolutely. Rescue 10X Summer Edition is what's coming up starting June 15th. We have weekly calls on Zoom in our private community on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. In addition to having the, the coaching calls where we actually cover some curriculum, we, we talk about some things that are going on, we share some information with you. We also have a full coursework that includes video lectures from Rip and some special guests 
In addition to the, the lectures with Rip and special guests, we also have an entire workbook that you can print out, one PDF at a time. We've got charts and graphs, including the calorie density chart that makes what Doug was talking about really simple. We've got exercises for you to do that actually not the physical kind, the mental exercises that you can fill out worksheets and really dig deep into why you want to do this and why it matters to you and how you can get there by adjusting some things and looking inward. We do this as a group. So everybody's working on the same page together and we really help you get to the spots that you need to be. We share all kinds of tools with you throughout the Rescue 10X program, including kitchen tips and how to get started with fitness and all kinds of different things to really make this a cohesive program that you're going to get all together in a private community, not on Facebook, where you can log in and share your triumphs, your troubles, your struggles, and your questions with the entire Rescue 10X community. This is for a 10-week program. You have uh, all of the PDFs that you can download, plus some, some uh, other lectures and things that are in there for you as well. And it's ultimately the kind of program where you get out of it what you put into it. We hope you'll log in. On, on the daily or on the weekly, we hope that you'll post, share your progress, share your struggles, share your meals, get all kinds of meal, meal inspiration, including 70 plant strong meals that are super easy to make with no recipes right off the bat. And so there's all kinds of things in there for you, including a seven day meal plan trial um, that is a PDF that you print out. We've got all kinds of loaded information inside the Rescue 10X for you starting June 15th for the summer edition. And Amy's a little too modest to say it, but I'm going to tell you that every week we go in the kitchen with Amy. So those of you that are familiar with Amy from the Facebook group for all the years she did that, she's bringing all that knowledge, all that inspiration to our calls. So you don't want to miss the, the, the coaching calls that happen every week. So listen, if you've struggled to eat this way, if this is all new to you, if you've tried it before and you failed, or if you've been doing it, but you're not really doing it, right? You're kind of slipping and and eh, making some bad decisions, as we like to say in, in the Rescue Tentex program. This is your chance. This is your chance on June 15th to get involved with this group and make it work for you. You know, there's a saying that says, you are always one decision away from a brand new life. Make this, that your, make this your decision. Make your decision to join us on June 15th. Go to rescue10x.com, join us, sign up for the group, it starts June 15th. It's a Tuesday night. The calls are at 8 p.m. Eastern time. They are recorded, so you don't have to be live, although being live is a lot more fun. But if you can't make it or work gets in the way or whatever, you have an opportunity to watch the recorded calls. So if you have any questions on the Rescue 10X program, you can email us at rescue10x, that's the number 10, 10, and then x at plantstrong.com. So I just want to thank Rip and Lori for allowing us this time to talk to you about the program. And we hope to see you all on June 15th. Rip is gonna be joining us to wrap up this section of the Rip's Rescue Mastering Weight Loss. John and Amy, you guys, thank you so much. You know, John, you always throw a curveball at me or some new information. <laughs> I had no idea what the acronym for failure was. First attempt at learning. That's, that's really good. And, and I want everybody hungry. to know that we don't care how many times you fall, how many times you trip up, just as long as you get up one more time than you fall down. And, uh, and that's the kind of mindset that Amy and John are going to reinforce with you. And remember, you're going to be surrounded by all these amazing like-minded people. Uh, it's like 
when, when I, during this whole Doug event, I see all you guys chatting in the, uh, in the chat room and you're so supportive and you're so loving. And, you know, people are saying, what do I do for this? And it's amazing how you guys are helping each other out. Imagine if you had a tribe or a family of people that were working side by side with you, along with Amy and John to help you master this. That's what you guys can have. So I'm going to stop now. Um, I need to get home to my wife and kids. Um, but you guys, thank you so much for being part of this second Rips Rescue virtual event. Again, it's called Rescue because we want you, we want to give you the tools and the resources and the tips so you can rescue yourself. It's not about your doctor. It's not about your mother or your brothers or your sisters or your coworkers. This is about you learning how to do this absolutely yourself with potentially our help. So with that, thank, thanks again to Doug Lyle for his fantastic lecture. We love Doug Lyle. He's brilliant. Um, he's got so much information that he's garnered over the last 30 plus years. And each and every one of you, I wish you all the best as we're all coming out of COVID-19. It's been a really brutal year and a half for absolutely everyone. And so my thoughts and prayers and well wishes are for each and every one of you. And uh, you know what? Life is always better when you're planned strong and you're healthy. So with that, you guys, I hope to see you sometime soon. Amy, John, Lori, the Engine 2 Plant Strong team. I love you guys. Peace, Engine 2. Keep it plant strong. If you're ready to take the next step, I want to invite you to join our Plant Strong Rescue 10X Summer Edition that starts June 15th. Let's face it, embarking on a plant-based lifestyle can be daunting, especially if you're one of the many people that are battling health issues. This program is about applying the principles learned in the seven-day rescue challenge with 10 weeks of total group support with a fierce, fierce loyal community. This is about focusing on best practices and real life application. This is about developing the long-term habits needed to make a plant strong lifestyle truly sustainable. This is about taking back your health and losing weight without losing your mind. For registration information, visit the episode notes at plantstrongpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening and feel free to share this episode with friends, family, and loved ones who may benefit. I'm Rip Esselstyn. Let's keep it plant strong.